Once every blue moon, there's a unique individual who's able to graduate high school and college way before their peers. Rob Krasnowski is one of these people, and today he's working for Spring Labs, a blockchain company who's working in the identity verification field and was able to raise $15 million in its first four months of being founded. Rob brings massive value to the show today and his talks not only about blockchain, but about education in general. Rob, welcome to the show. I just finished introducing you in that article that you sent me about Spring Labs. Before we get to Spring Labs, I need you to talk a little bit about filling everybody in on your background. Because your education path wasn't like most people. You got to skip a couple steps. Or was it really skipping steps or was it just you did it in a different way? No. <laughs> Sorry. You go into your story. Absolutely. No, this is actually funny. It's something that I kind of had, uh, rehearsed so many times by the time I got to, what, 13, 14, just because it was kind of like a really unusual story. So I'm actually, so I was born, I'm going to start all the way back in the beginning if that's all right with you. Great. I was born in Chicago here in uh, Illinois, where I'm currently at. And uh, soon afterwards, actually, my family's from Poland. So uh, as you can probably tell by my last name, Krasanowski, right? So very soon afterwards, we moved back to Europe. So I actually lived in Warsaw, and then I moved to Amsterdam for a while, where I spent uh, about three, four years when I was a kid, six through nine, just, you know, doing my normal thing, being a normal kid. And then when we moved back here, my dad actually made a mistake. When we moved, he told the superintendent that I was 11, and they heard uh, an 11 year old in fifth grade is moving to Chicago. Great. We'll put him in fifth grade. Totally makes sense. Except the only problem is that in Amsterdam, fifth grade is actually third grade there because they start school two years earlier. And then the other part of that is that I was actually nine. So uh, it was just purely a logistical screw up by my dad. But uh, it was too late. You know, I had started class uh, and I realized a couple of days in, wait a second, everyone else here is two years older than me. What's going on? So but they decided to let me stay. I kind of kept going at it. And uh, I graduated. Uh, I graduated uh, six, sorry, sixth grade is what I meant to say. I graduated sixth grade that year. That was in uh, 2001 when we first moved over from Amsterdam to the U.S. So that was the sort of like step one of that. And then uh, we moved back to Amsterdam to uh, my parents needed to finish some business. So we spent about a year there. And then when we moved back, um, I somehow sort of uh, landed up in uh, as a freshman in high school in uh, North Central or Naperville North out in Naperville. And same time, my dad had actually also found a mentor over at the local uh, liberal arts college called North Central College. Uh, that put an ad in the newspaper saying kids that are in high school can start doing high school level, can start doing college level math. And so uh, I worked with that mentor over the summer, uh, ended up doing really well. And so during that fall of 2000, I think it was 2002, I ended up taking part time classes in high school over at the local high school and then part time in college. And it's actually really funny at the end of that semester. So I was 11 at the time. Um, I ended up doing better in the college classes than in the high school classes, because in the high school classes, there was more boring stuff, such as having to color maps for ancient history class, which I just kind of found boring. So I actually ended up doing better in my calculus and English class in college. And after that, I switched over full time during the winter semester and, uh, yeah, took it from there and ended up graduating a couple years later at the age of 16. Wow. There are a lot of things we could dive into there and talk more about. But for now, um, since that time of your 
incredibly unique education. You've gone and worked at a couple different startups in the Chicago area. And now you're working at a company called Spring Labs, right? Yes. Now, reading that article, it seems like there's a lot of interest in this blockchain identity verification space. Would you mind mm -hmm. talking a little bit more about what Spring Labs is doing and how you found yourself there working with them? Yeah, no, absolutely. I love jumping out of that in media's res kind of middle of the story presentation all the way to the current sort of contemporary situation. So today, yes, I'm at Spring Labs and I actually started a couple of months ago. And it's a really interesting situation because this is probably the only time in my life when I get poached by the CEO of my former company to leave and go to a different company because he's actually on the board of this new company while still running the previous company called Avant that was previously at for the last five years or so. So it's a, it's a very interesting situation uh, in terms of blockchain. So I'm sure everyone's heard about sort of blockchain and cryptocurrency and, and all this stuff that's sort of been in the zeitgeist and on people's minds. Uh, the idea is that if it's possible, because I don't know how, uh, I don't know if, the, your listeners are sort of familiar with like computer science fundamentals or terms, but um, usually organizations like any business nowadays that runs has a private database where it puts all of its stuff. It puts all of its data. And so Avant is one of those companies. And uh, with this whole crypto phenomenon, cryptocurrency and blockchain and so on, there becomes the possibility of establishing trust between companies in a way that they can, they can compare or run computations on data between their respective databases without actually revealing anything inside those databases. So it kind of seems like, like a contradiction in terms, like, Rob, how is it possible for two companies to do something with both of their data without revealing anything about their data, right? Um, and so the way that works is it uses something called cryptography and secure multi-party computation uh, but the way that Spring Labs applies it in particular is that Avant is a online or started as an online consumer lender, uh, lives and breathes in the fintech space and uh, basically makes started out as making loans. Now they have a credit card product. They're going to be expanding to a hard secure uh, auto loan and so on and continuing up the ramp of different financial products such as student loans and mortgages eventually and so on. And the current credit ecosystem, the way it works is there's all these financial institutions and they have to make decisions about their customers. So the one thing that I kind of focused on heavily while I was at Avant was something called credit and underwriting, which means uh, customers apply, meaning they go to the website, they put in some basic information, and then the company has to make a decision as to whether or not it's going to give them $20,000, right? That's sort of like an example of the kind of loan sizes that Avant dealt with. And of course, for a bank, that's even bigger. Right. It may be a mortgage. It can be 200, 300, whatever it is, thousand dollars. And so it's a big commitment. So they need that data and they need to be able to make a sane decision as to whether or not the customer will be able to eventually pay back. So the way that works in the current ecosystem is there's what are called the sort of credit reporting agencies, such as TransUnion, Experian and Equifax. And the way that they operate is that they take in. Uh, performance data from other institutions. So in other JP Morgan Chase and Discover are attempting to, to participate in such a tra uh, transaction with a the consumer, then if the consumer, let's say Joe, comes in to Discover and takes out a credit card and starts making off, starts paying off his balance, and then six months later applies with Chase, Chase would really like to know whether or not Joe has any financial products like credit cards with other companies and more pertinently, whether or not he's actually paying them off. 
right? Or if he can't pay them off so that Chase can give him the appropriate APR so that they can continue running a business instead of um, not being able to have a revenue flow, you know, so they can continue existing as a corporation and so on. And so in order to do that, Chase reaches out to TransUnion or Experian or Equifax or any of these credit bureaus, which has aggregated that data from Discover and gets back a credit report. So it gets back information about Joe that says, hey, Joe has made payments on this credit card. Uh, everything looks great, you know, uh, and from there they can make that decision as to whether or not issue him a loan. And Spring Labs is now saying, take all of this blockchain stuff, this crypto stuff. I know I've kind of been dancing between many topics because it is a very multidisciplinary field as it currently stands. Uh, but Spring Labs is kind of coming in and we're saying, why have that central third party aggregator that's uh, getting all of that data, putting it into a central place, and then selling it right back to the same institutions. Why not have all those institutions, the financial institutions like banks and insurance companies and credit card companies connected directly to each other in a peer-to-peer network and simply share whatever they need to share to make be able to remain profitable and provide credit to their customers uh, in a way that's fully decentralized. So that's kind of the fundamental premise. I, I mainly have kind of spent giving some background material because I'm not I'm not calibrated to how much people already know. So I just want it to be comprehensive. Rob, that was a great intro because a lot of our listeners are multidisciplinary and they have business domain knowledge, but they're coming here to learn a little bit more about how the tech side is applying to their domain expertise. So that was perfect. And one of the things I want to dive a little bit deeper into is the role in the interaction that Spring Labs is going to be having with these large credit bureaus, because these are massive established companies. And even with Avant, when I was working in Chicago, I remember hearing Avant get talked about in the intern communities, talking about how Avant is changing how lending is done. And now Spring Labs is coming into a, another space where there's been these industry giants leading it for so many years. Is Does Spring Labs hope to form partnerships with these large uh, credit bureaus, or is this going to be more of a David and Goliath kind of interaction? Yeah, you know, I mean, it just occurred to me that I haven't even checked internally with my PR department, or we don't really have PR department because we're a startup as to how much I can even say or can say. Um, okay. I'm going to just walk sort of the conservative line and say, uh, I don't know what our public policy is. So um, I, I'm imagining the question. I'm imagining if the answer is yes or if the answer is no. Like, would I be able to say in each respect? So I'm going to basically be able to say that uh, we have very high hopes and expectations. And the company's founded by serial entrepreneurs that have founded multi-billion dollar businesses. So we're not afraid to tackle relationships, you know, with large institutions. Um, but I don't think I can comment on any particular, like, uh, names or plans like that. Love the safe answer. Yeah, definitely. It's better that way. One other thing that John was talking to me about when we first got introduced was learning techniques that you've got. When, when John came onto my podcast, well, he's been on a few times. One of the things I really loved was he brought us through this experience of memory palaces. That was a concept I'd never heard of before, but using key details and applying uh, emotions to it to really reinforce learning. And with your education background, you've got to have some ways to learn that are different from how typical people are learning. Do you have any uh, tips or tools you can share? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think that's, that's probably something that anyone sort of who has dive, dove deeply into a topic has tried to answer, right? And try to find like sort of like the meta rules that universally apply and just make you better at learning rather than make you better at the specific domain. Is that, is that kind of what you're asking about or yes. specifically about or, something domain or something you can apply anywhere? 
you know what? Let's bring it specific because you've got a lot of uh, experience now in finances and in blockchain. Do you have anything particularly for this new tech in uh, blockchain revolution for how people can learn? Anyways, mm. that like, yeah, that yeah. I'll let you take that with however you want. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Let me kind of give some kind of answer. I mean, I have thoughts coming to mind. Um, I don't necessarily know how to structure them in a way that gives you the full answer. I think there's very many ways to answer that question. So I'm just going to give you a couple of answers and then uh, hopefully that's going to be somewhat informative. How about that? Great. Uh, so in terms of catching up to sort of like the breadth of knowledge that is necessary for a let's call it a nascent field that is highly interdisciplinary, like I mentioned. Uh, yeah, certainly you do need some sort of structured learning strategies, if that makes sense. Now, I think in particular with me, uh, I actually haven't really been good about that in the sense of historically, uh, I tend to meander, you know, from topic to topic. And there are times when I get very focused. Um, but I don't think I can say there's ever been a time in my life when I said I'm only going to do X for the next three years and I succeed in doing nothing but X for those three years, if that makes sense, except maybe possibly with the stuff I was working at at Avant. So with that caveat out of the way, um, I do want to mention stuff that's been helpful for me, uh, particularly with catching up to like all the material that exists around the blockchain and the cryptocurrency and the fintech space. So uh, I'm actually really lucky right now in the position I'm currently in. So I'm actually chief architect, um, which is kind of like a very nondescript title. Uh, but what I end up actually doing most of my time right now is reading a lot of papers. So believe it or not, um, a lot of my industry work right now is just simply sitting down with math papers and trying to figure out the theory behind a lot of things like what is a consensus mechanism? What is uh, what is the theory of a blockchain in the sense of how do you build something that is running on multiple machines run by different organizations, but can maintain uh, a single source of truth in the sense that uh, the between those and synchronize between those organizations uh, without needing a, a central party uh, or even on the cryptography side, reading textbooks about uh, what is symmetric versus asymmetric key encryption? What is a uh, pseudo random function? What is a zero knowledge proof and so on? So all these are kind of like technical jargon that I'm throwing out. And I guess what I'm trying to say is I haven't really found the shortcut. Um, I did certainly try early on to kind of read a bunch of blog posts and try to glean from the PR, if you will, and sort of like the external hype. Um, what's going on very early on as I was kind of considering the project and retroactively thinking about it, I didn't really learn much other than the art of instilling hype and like buzz um, in, in terms of actual like concrete domain knowledge. I haven't really found something that's been more effective than just sitting down and putting in what's called sitzfleisch, which is like this German word for the ability to put your butt in your seat and just, you know, do something like read or write or whatever it is that you're actively working on for as long as a stretch of time as possible. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to feel productive. Like maybe it can be that, you know, you, you put that five hour time slot, whatever it is, and you're just sitting there and two of those hours, you're kind of just like doodling and maybe you have a problem and in mind, like for example, uh, how do we come up with a, with a way to scale from, uh, from a hundred to a thousand or how do we solve a problem related to how do you represent identity on the blockchain? Like whatever it is, you have a problem in mind. 
um, and you're reading either papers or you're reading resources. It can even be blog posts. It can even be listening to podcasts, but it's actively listening to podcasts. If you're listening right now and you're applying this technique, it would mean that you have a structured time in your calendar when you're listening to me speak and you're taking notes and trying to go back and structure those notes in a way that makes sense to you personally rather than just kind of like passively be done with the podcast, close the button, then go on with your day. So that kind of like activity, that kind of active uh, note taking, sort of rewriting, restructuring and so on, I think is pretty critical. Uh, I found that that's kind of been the core. So the biggest boost I felt in terms of understanding this space in particular actually came from just spending five days sitting down and reading until like my eyes couldn't like read anymore. Um, there's these two books called Foundations of Cryptography by Oded Goldreich, um, who's, this, uh, who's this sort of like heralded cryptographer that wrote a lot of the theory in the space. Um, and most of it is just, a, is just a difficult math book. It's just, here's a theorem and here's a proof for why this theorem holds. Um, and here's another theorem and here's why it holds. And here's a couple of definitions. And here's some pros explaining, you know, roughly like what these definitions and theorems mean and so on and just on and on like that in two volumes across like 800 pages and i can't pretend that i understood even half of it but just by like you know forcing myself to put my eyes over the text and keep turning pages even if i don't quite know what's going on it at least achieved two things which is one it gave me uh a high level bird's eye overview of like what the important subtopics are in the field so that I'm no longer afraid. It's no longer sort of like this mystery fog of war, but I have a lay of the land. And then B, um, kind of along the same lines, but more tactically, it kind of inured me to, to the fear of, oh my God, there's like so much to learn. There's just so many different areas here. You know, you have to think about the token economics and the the hardcore cryptography part and there's number theory they need to bring in to actually implement it. Oh, and then there's also the distributed systems part and the consensus mechanisms. Oh, and by the way, I need to learn Golang. Oh, in order to learn Golang, you know, I have to go back and refresh my static B type languages. Like there's so much to sort of like branching out that by sitting down and just like forcing to forcing oneself to just glaze your eyes through the whole thing in a couple of back-to-back -back uninterrupted sessions at the end, you've performed this sort of like brainwashing trick on oneself and told your brain, Hey, no, this is like scary. Like, you know, all this stuff, even if you don't like your brain's like, yeah, I know all this stuff. I've seen this before, like no problem. And then when you run into it or something that's like one or two degrees removed from it, you know, a week later, you kind of just feel like, Oh wow. Like I, I certainly know all this stuff and you don't, <laughs> but what you've accomplished is just, you're no longer, uh, there's no more friction. Like instead, like if you're reading a blog post that touches on something that's really technical or difficult, or if you're reading another paper that's really technical or difficult, you just you, like without any, without blinking. And uh, you're no longer sort of like, there's no more resistance or friction telling you like, hey, you can't read this. This is too hard right now. Like uh, just skip it or come back to it later. You just execute. That's, I, I don't know. If no, no, no. I cut out a little bit. I didn't know if you were still talking or if you had finished. I love what you had said. Um, and I think you hit on something really critical about this contradiction between branching out and trying to do a million different things, but then also being very present and doing deep work and really spending a lot of time just being in with one single thing. And it seems like that, those two things together have made it so that you one that the broad aspect gives you a filter over life so that you can understand in a broad sense how to how to find things that provide you value and then also to skip the things that don't 
but then the ability to drill down into that deep work lets you actually shorten the time. Like you were able to go and learn about all of blockchain and everything you needed to do to get caught up to speed rather than spending four years in a degree over five days of deep work, really reading research papers, diving into these books and like just intimately spending time, letting your brain just focus on that, not letting the distractions of other things uh, take away that attentional energy, but just keeping it all focused on one thing. So I, I love what you've been saying and we've been, this is one of the longer podcast episodes, so I don't want to hold you for too much longer. What I do want to know is do you see that being a trend for more people in the future of needing to generate deep work? Or do you think that people with this age of attention grabbing, we have notifications pummeling us everywhere. Do you think that we're going to see the, the shift towards less attention on things? Or the, the focus need is going to continue to shift towards deep work, maintaining importance? Absolutely. I think that's a really good question. And it's definitely something that I think is persistently in everyone's minds. Um, and I think it's even being recognized at the top in the sense that I don't know if you saw, but Google is actually launching. Uh, I believe it's Google that's launching an initiative to provide a bunch of tools to manage how much uh, time and uh, attention is diverted onto your smartphone. <laughs> Um, and I think a lot of the big players sort of in the valley are following suit, uh, which is where things are headed to. People are recognizing that this a constant interruption and distraction driven approach is not really it's not really effective in the long run. And it saps a lot more than it gives in the sense of providing all of those little sort of discrete pieces of information that come your way, maybe very interesting, uh, but over the long run, just fail to get internalized. Uh, I think. It's largely, there's, there's definitely things that are external, sort of more like societal that can help with that. But I think the majority of that is a personal decision, right? And it's both a personal decision and how you choose to implement that as a personal decision. So I definitely know, I definitely know a lot of people who, for example, choose to batch their email in uh, a morning session and a late afternoon session and refuse to check it outside of those bounds or people that turn their phones off, like during those uninterrupted work hours or uh, people that... Uh, uh, use a very structured sort of like almost taxonomy for all their communication and their notifications so that instead of getting those notifications, it's more like you get a digest and then you sit there and you categorize the digest into uh, with your favorite productivity system, GTD, whatever it is, uh, and then use those structured time hours you have set up later in order to actually go process that backlog. Rob, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. I didn't get to dive into nearly every aspect I wanted to, but that's just a, that's a side effect of your lifestyle, it seems. So I want to thank you for bringing your experience onto the show. Good luck with Spring Labs, and I hope we can collaborate more in the future. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on.